postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Happy Monday, everyone. It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast, where we are currently in a Padinar series, right? Padinar series, season one. We're exploring how to reach the secular mind. Now, I'd love to hear back from you guys as well. Shoot me an email if you get a chance. Um, let me know what you think about this whole Padinar thing where uh, rather than doing a random episode each week, I'm focusing on specific themes that the church needs to be trained and equipped on uh, and doing series on each of those specific themes. Uh, I'm actually really, really uh, inclining toward doing the next season on um, how to reach people from different religious backgrounds. I think it'd be really cool because a lot of the same principles that apply to connecting with a secular age, postmodern age, um, can re- be really amplified by taking the gospel as we know it and understanding, for example, how a Buddhist thinks and how to connect with a Buddhist or a Muslim or uh, a Hindu um, and, and work from that perspective, right? From that point of view, you're, you're still working with religious people, but the categories are far, far distinct, very distinct from what we as Seventh-day Adventists are used to. And so I'm honestly, like, I'm thinking that might be where I head next. Uh, just do um, a, a basic series, probably about eight episodes on on different religions that we are likely to encounter today. And uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, obviously, because we'd be here forever. But just a few, just to get those basic skills of contextualization um, and, and adaptation to different minds and different worldviews, just to get those skills embedded a little bit more. Uh, but anyways... Um, I, look, that's not a guarantee. That might not be the next season, but I'm really thinking about it. Uh, but that aside, uh, yeah, look, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to th- know what you think about having these Padinars that focus on specific themes. And if there is a theme that you think would be really beneficial for the church to get um, you know, some insight and training, and you'd love a resource that you could send to your elders or your deacons or your Sabbath school teachers or your youth leaders or whoever... Um, and say, hey, check this out because you'll get some good insight here on, you know, this particular missional um, approach or, you know, issue or whatever it might be. Let me know. Let me know. And um, if, if I get enough requests on a particular topic, I'm totally keen to do a pot in our series or season on that. And even if I don't have all the answers, there's other people who do. And I can always just call them, interview them. We can have a few conversations, get some good stuff out there. Um, anyways, I want to go ahead and and jump into uh, episode five. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before I jump into episode five, I wanted to pause for a moment because I haven't done this for a little while, all right? And and I want to make sure that I keep doing it because it's so, so meaningful and important to me. I want to thank all of the patrons of the Story Church Project. Thank you guys so much. I've got a number uh, of patrons, I think about five um, on on patreon.com. 
And really, thank you guys so much because running the Story Church project is obviously not free. And there's a big vision to not just, you know, run a project with a website that I have to pay for. That's that's not the vision. The vision is to um, redesign Adventism, right? And how are we going to redesign Adventism? Well, it's not going to happen at thestorychurchproject.com. All right. That's not where the redesigning of Adventism is going to happen. The redesigning of Adventism is going to happen with you, right? With you as the listener, with your church members, with the people that you are in contact with. And, um, and so in order for that mission to be fulfilled, then the content needs to reach more people. And the patrons, you guys help out so much with that because having those patrons that support the project, um, just, you know, patron, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't, I can't think of the right word right now, but basically donating, I suppose is the best word I can think of at the moment. Um, a particular amount each month that they've, that they've, um, pledged. That's the word I'm looking for <laughs> that they've pledged. Um, then that's, you know, that's super helpful because there's a little bit of that cash flow that enables the project then to spread because, you know, you can do like paid ads and stuff. Um, but also it just helps enable, uh, different materials and resources to be created that are also like advancing the project and advancing the vision. So thank you patrons so much. And if you want to support the, the story church project, just if you go to the storychurchproject.com at the very top of the page, there's a little link. Uh, I believe the link is support and it takes you straight, straight to the patron page, which I believe is patreon.com slash the story church project if you just want to go straight there. Uh, but thank you guys so much. Thank you, patrons, so much. Thank you to all of the Instagram, Twitter, Facebook followers as well. Uh, you guys are amazing. Those who comment, those who share uh, memes or links or blogs, podcasts, whatever. Um, those who have purchased eBooks as well. Uh, thank you guys so much because that's what, that's what lets me know, Hey, keep going, you know, and there have been times where I've been like, you know what? I think I'm going to stop this. It's, it's, you know, I'm not sure that it's uh, really working. Um, and then I'll just get like people who randomly message and say, you know, Hey, thank you so much for this, you know, or a post will, um, kind of reach people and, and, and hit them in the fields and, <laughs> and they come back and, and just express their appreciation. And that's sort of like a, a, a God moment for me where I'm like, you know what? Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's do this thing. Uh, so thank you guys so much. I really, really appreciate each and every one of you who are connected to this project in smaller, big ways. I value and appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you so much. All right, let's get into episode five now. Okay. Episode five, understanding the secular mind. We've explored quite a bit so far, laying a foundation for understanding the secular mind. And the bottom line, if you forget anything else out of this entire series, the bottom line that I really want you to get is this. You cannot reach a secular world if you, do, if you do not inhabit a secular world. That doesn't that doesn't obviously mean that we become a secular person or that we abandon um, our uh, values or identity as followers of Jesus in order to reach people. Obviously, that's not what I'm about, but it means that we don't simply look at secularism as a problem to be solved, right? We don't simply look at the the, the um, structures, if we can use that language, that, that construct um, secular thought, and we look at them with you know, a bull's eye focus on discovering where they're false and where they're wrong and how we can expose them and condemn them. No, 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 no. If you want to understand 
a secular person and reach a secular person, then you need to inhabit their world. And this means not only understanding their worldview, but finding the ways in which you can appreciate their worldview, finding the ways in which you can celebrate their worldview, finding the ways in which you can actually come together on points of agreement and say, hey, look, this is what you guys believe um, and or, or this is what you believe. It's Yeah, let me rephrase that because there's not any real way of saying this is what you guys, all secular people believe because all secular people don't believe the same thing. But as you get to know a person and you get to inhabit their world and you get to you know deepen your friendship with them, you'll get a better understanding of how they see the world. And, and you want to appreciate that and you want to celebrate that and you want to affirm that, right? And so that's, that's really powerful, right? That's really, 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 really powerful. And let me give you a quick example of just something very recent happened to me just last week that um, really captures or exemplifies what I mean by inhabiting someone's world, affirming their world, but leading them to Christ. So I had a conversation with a friend of mine who didn't grow up in church last, uh, just last week. And he's had a lot of issues because um, he's got a background in drugs and he's got drug charges that he's facing and he's dealt with pretty bad drug addiction. And really his entire life has just been one giant battle, right? He, his, his mom didn't uh, raise him. He was, he was adopted. Um, she gave him up for adoption. And then, you know, he struggled there with clashes with the family who was raising him. And uh, he's been abused and all kinds of stuff. Like it's just been a really, really hard life for this guy. Um, and he ended up coming to church because he saw, he saw Hacksaw Ridge, right, with Desmond Doss. And he told me the story. He's like, man, I was watching Hacksaw Ridge with a friend of mine. We were smoking weed and uh, <laughs> like high watching Hacksaw Ridge. And he starts crying halfway through the movie. And his friend's like, dude, why are you crying? And he says, whatever that Desmond guy has, I want it. I want it. And so that's where his kind of his journey began. And he'd, he'd, uh, he'd, he'd recently come out of a, a drug overdose that should have killed him. And, and the doctor told him, man, you shouldn't be alive because he actually went into a coma. And the doctor said to him, like, you, you shouldn't be alive, bro. Like, um, there's, there's someone looking out for you. And so he was already sort of in this space where the Holy Spirit was already working on his heart and, and softening his heart and, 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 you know, like reaching, calling out to him. So anyway, so he starts looking around. He finds an Adventist church and because, you know, Desmond Doss was an Adventist. And um, so he starts uh, attending. But, you know, it's been a struggle for him because he doesn't come from our world. He doesn't speak our language. He doesn't understand our frameworks. And he's dealing with vices that we are not accustomed to. To, we're not used to discipling people like him, right? We're used to discipling people who are kind of middle class and well-to-do and educated and don't have too many problems. And then when someone like that shows up, we kind of don't know what to do with him. Um, and I want to praise the church because the church has always received him and embraced him. They've never judged him. In fact, our, our church was one of the first churches he said he is the first place he'd ever been in his life where he didn't feel judged. And that's just beautiful. But it has been difficult discipling him because it's just not a thing that we are used to. Um, we're, we're used to being able to give someone Bible studies, you know, fill their head with information and then just leave them be. But guys like this, they need constant discipleship attention. Um, in, uh, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, not inspiration, but just, yeah, nurturing, nurturing. Um, but anyways, he's had a really, really rough year. And just last week we had a big phone call cause he was in a really bad state with his mental health and ve feeling very depressed. His doctor was worried about him as well. Cause he, he's had, um, 
uh, suicidal um, tendencies lately. So, you know, we get on the phone and we're talking and um, we talked about a lot of stuff and he's telling me all his problems and, and I'm just praying for the Holy Spirit. I'm like, Holy Spirit, please put something in my mouth because I don't know what to say to this guy. And and I hope I hope you guys appreciate that because I've said this before and I'll say it again. I talk about ministering to secular culture a lot because it's my passion. But when it comes to inhabiting an actual secular life and ministering to an actual secular life, a person, a soul, a consciousness, there's no formula, all right? There's no formula. So like, I'm not like some like secular postmodern whisperer who could just walk up to any secular person and get them to follow Jesus. It doesn't work that way, right? Like there is no formula. You really have to get to know people and love them and inhabit their world and understand the way their, their minds work and, and the things they value and, and so on and so forth. So I'm sitting here and I'm talking with him and he's sharing with me all these big problems that he has. And I'm like, God, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. Like, please put something in my mouth. Holy Spirit, please help me reach this guy, you know? Um, and so I begin to share the thing that God put on my heart. So I begin to share with him where Jesus says, hey, seek first the kingdom of heaven and all these things will be added unto you. And I'm challenging him and saying, you know, you keep, you keep fighting all the things in your life, but God is saying, look, let me do that fighting and, and you just focus on Jesus, right? You just have a relationship with Jesus. Just focus on him. Focus on the kingdom and I'll take care of everything else. And so I'm challenging him with that and saying, look, man, you, you're too stressed with all this crazy stuff in your life. You know, just let it go. Give it to God and focus on Jesus, man. Like build your relationship with him. Focus on his kingdom. And and his reply, which is, you know, quite quite expected from a young secular Australian guy. His reply is, you know, here's my problem with that, that if I give everything over to God, I'm basically saying I'm weak. I'm a weakling. I can't handle it. And, um, and I just, I can't do that, man. Like I can't just hand it over to God like that because I feel like I'm just basically saying, here I am, big weakling. Here you go. You take care of it because I clearly can't handle it. And that doesn't sit well with me. Um, and so at that moment, I had two options, okay? Two options. Option number one, the traditional Christian evangelist Adventist approach. What is that? Listen up, man. You said you don't want to feel weak, but let me show you a bunch of Bible verses that say that you are weak and that you just need to accept that you're weak and just, you know, let go of that pride and just give it over to God. And I've seen people do that with secular folk before, and it doesn't work, okay? It doesn't work, and I'll give you a snippet as to why. It doesn't work because the issue isn't really I'm weak or I'm strong. The issue is significantly more profound than that. So I had another a friend of mine who's a, a also very secular Australian, um, raised totally out of the church, and... Uh, he was having a conversation with a guy in church because he'd just come out of drug rehab. So he was kind of open. You know, you remember I talked to you guys last time, but sometimes when the modes of navigation collapse, and so their modes of navigation would have been amusement, right? The mode of navigation collapses and there's a sort of a window. There's an opening into seeking spiritual things. So he's seeking spiritual things. And, and at that phase, the language and the constructs and the frameworks that you use are so important because if you use these really old school, traditional stuff, you lose them. So anyways, this guy tells him, hey, uh, this very traditional Adventist tells this other guy, um, you know, you just need to submit to God. You just need to surrender to God. And 
you know, this, this friend of mine, this secular friend says, oh, I don't want to, you know, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't want to surrender to God. I don't want to submit to God. And later on, when I actually had a, a, a just a one-on-one conversation with him, I realized why he was raised in an extremely abusive home with a very controlling father. And the father was all about submission. He was all about, you know, submit to me, do what I say. And so as a Christian, when you say, hey, you should submit to God, you should give it all over to him, all they hear is abuse, right? All they hear is abuse, at least these guys, right? And so I knew with this, you know, that's, that, was, that last story was my second friend. Let me go back to my first friend, <laughs> the original story I was telling. Um, I knew if I sit here and start pulling out a whole bunch of Bible verses on how the Bible says we are weak and that without him, we can do nothing. And that, you know, our strength is made perfect and his strength is made perfect in weakness and blah, blah, blah. I knew I was going to lose him. I knew I was going to lose him. And so I prayed again. I was like, Holy Spirit, you got to give me, you, you got to give me something that will speak to his heart, that will reach him where he is. This isn't about theology. This isn't about debating some doctrinal proposition on, you know, um, human, you know, anthropocentric or anthropological concerns related to theology and, you know, whether we're weak or strong, blah, blah, blah. That's not what this is about. This is about something fundamentally more human. Please give me the right words to speak. And as I'm praying that prayer and he's sharing, he's like, oh, I don't want to feel weak, you know, and all this stuff. The Holy Spirit brought to my mind this, um, this poem that I had read so long ago, you guys, so long ago. I hadn't even thought of it in years. It was a poem that I read when I was a soldier in the army. And it was a poem that was written during World War II by an army sergeant. And I'm not going to read the whole poem to you because it's a little long. But I want to read the very last line because that's the line that the Holy Spirit brought to my mind. Okay. And, and, and so I said to Danny, you know, the Holy Spirit brings this. I only read this one time, guys, and I hadn't thought about it since. But this line comes into my head. And, and I said to my friend, I said, hey, listen up, bro. I think I know what God wants to say to you. Um, so you love Desmond Doss. He's your hero. He's your faith hero. So I want to I wanna sort of quote to you a poem that was written by one of his comrades, an army sergeant during World War II. And so now my friend's listening because, you know, Doss is his, is his hero. So he's listening. He's like, all right. So I said, look, I'm not going to read the whole poem to you. Just what I said to you guys. I'm just going to read the last line. All right, the last line. And I actually had to Google it because I just remembered a little bit of the last line. I didn't even remember the whole thing. I just knew this is what God wanted me to say. So I go to this poem and I read the very last line. And this is a poem. And the name of the poem is Final Inspection. And it was written by Sergeant Joshua Helterbrin during uh, the Second World War. And the poem is about a soldier. And this is what I told my friend. The, the poem is about a soldier who has died. And now he's in heaven and God is deciding whether he goes in or out. All kinds of theological problems, okay, you guys? Just like Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus, by the way. So chill out, all right? Um, the poem is about this soldier who dies. He goes to heaven and God is standing there and he's deciding whether the soldier gets in or out. So they're having this conversation. And the very last line of the poem says this. This is God speaking. Step forward now, soldier. You've borne your burdens well. Come walk peacefully on heaven's streets. You've done your time in hell. And I said to Danny, I believe what God wants to say to you today is not, hey, give me all of your problems because you're so weak, you can't handle it. No, I said to him, I believe what God wants to say to you today is, 
dude, you've done your time in hell. Let me take it from here. All your life you've been fighting. All your life you've been struggling. All your life has been a war. No more. It's time for you to rest. Just let me have it. Let me take it from here. And you just walk with Jesus. And these words came out of my mouth. And this is all Holy Spirit, guys. I'm taking zero credit here. This is all Holy Spirit. These words come out of my mouth. in the very Because we were on the phone, right? The very next thing I hear is I hear my friend just bawling, just weeping. And I knew the Holy Spirit had touched him. And so this is a personal example of what I mean by inhabiting the world of the other. Speaking the language of the heart, the language of being of the other. Letting go of the need to be correct, of the need to be right, of the need to, you know, no, theologically it says this and the verse says that and the other. No, 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 let that go and inhabit their world, see their world and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's really what we need, man. We need the Holy Spirit to, to really do this thing right. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually reframe and adapt the message that God is calling us to share in a way that's going to be meaningful to the people that we're interacting with. So, episode five, understanding the secular mind. Let's keep this journey going. I want to begin with a very simple story, or not story, um, a very simple reading from the book, How Not to Be Secular, reading Charles Taylor by James K.A. Smith. I want you to listen to this. This is from the introduction to his book. I highly recommend this book, How Not to Be Secular, uh, reading Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor Taylor is a Canadian philosopher who wrote the book, um, The Secular Age, or Our Secular Age. It's one or the other. Just look it up. Um, it's like a 900-page book. <laughs> uh, so, you know, uh, if you want to read it, go for it. I told my wife to get it from me for Father's Day. But um, Smith's book, How Not to Be Secular, is a commentary on Taylor's book. And what he does is he simplifies it and, and shortens it. Anyways, here is how Smith introduces his book, How Not to Be Secular. It really captures so much of what we've been exploring in this series. I'm going to read it now. This is from the introduction. You're a pastor or a church planner who has moved to Brooklyn or Berkeley or Boulder. Maybe you received a call to transplant yourself from Georgia or Grand Rapids or some other religious region of the country, sensing a burden to proclaim the gospel in one of the so many so-called godless urban regions of North America. And if you're in Australia, the UK, you can apply this to your perspective of Canada, whatever. You've left your Jerusalem on a mission to Babylon. You came with what you thought were all the answers to the unanswered questions these secular people had. But it didn't take long for you to realize that the questions weren't just unanswered they were unasked and they weren't questions that is your secular neighbors aren't looking for answers for some bit of information that is missing from their mental maps 
To the contrary, they have completely different maps. You've realized that instead of nagging questions about God or the afterlife, your neighbors are oriented by all sorts of longings and projects and quests for significance. There doesn't seem to be anything missing from their lives. You can't just come proclaiming the good news of Jesus who fills their God-shaped hole. They don't have any sense that the secular lives they've constructed are missing a second floor. In many ways, they have constructed webs of meaning that provide almost all the significance they need in their lives. In brackets, though a lot hinges on that almost. Suffice it to say that the paradigms you brought to your ministry have failed to account for your experience thus far. You thought you were moving to a world like yours, just minus God, but in fact, you've moved to a different world entirely. It turns out this isn't like the Mars Hill of St. Paul's experience in Acts 17, where people are devoted to all kinds of deities and you get to add to their pantheon by talking about the one true God. No, it seems that many have managed to construct a world of significance that isn't at all bothered by questions of the divine. Though that world might still be haunted in some ways. Haunted by what almost, or by that Almost. Your neighbors inhabit what Charles Taylor calls an imminent frame. They are no longer bothered by the God question. As a question, because they are devoted or devotees of exclusive humanism, a way of being in the world that offers significance without transcendence. They don't feel like anything is missing. So what does it look like to bear witness in the secular age? So that's just a little bit of the introduction to James K.A. Smith's How Not to Be Secular, reading Charles Taylor. I highly recommend it. But I think in, in that introduction in those few lines that I read, he captures so much of what I've been conveying in this Padanar series. That the secular mind is not merely looking at the world without God. The secular mind is looking at the world with a completely different set of glasses. And if we want to effectively reach them, we have to appreciate what those glasses are. We have to appreciate how it's constructed, how it's framed, how it's unleashed. Appreciate that and then adapt. Not changing the truth, but finding ways of connecting with them that are significantly more meaningful and more effective than the methods that we currently use. Because the methods that we currently use, and I'm gonna, we're going to dive into this in the last two episodes. There's two more episodes to this series, and then we're done. Uh, so after this episode, we'll do two more, uh, where we'll talk about methods, church, and evangelism. We'll get into that. And 
you'll see that the methods that we use assume a world that no longer exists. It assumes people are asking questions that nobody's asking. And that's why we're not reaching them. So anyways, I just thought that was a cool way to get back into this experience of understanding the secular mind. Uh, because as I started reading it, I thought, wow, this guy hit, he nailed it, man. He nailed it really well. So let's get, let's, let's, let's work towards some answers now. Let's work towards some answers. In the previous episode, we explored basically everything that we just read from Smith. And to bring it down to a more palatable, um, practical element, I just want to do a quick recap uh, on the perspectives on truth that we explored in the previous episode. Now, listen, if you're listening to this episode and you haven't heard the previous ones, what's the matter with you? Go back, all right? Listen to them because it, this will make much more sense if you do. But the perspectives on truth that we what we explored in the last episode is that when it comes to when it comes to truth, right? When it comes to communication, human beings speak two languages. There is a conceptual language and there is a language of being. The conceptual language is the words that we use, the colloquialisms, the slang, you know, the the verbs, the nouns, the adjectives. Uh, the language of being is something much more profound and emotive. And it can't always be adequately expressed in conceptual language. But we try, right? We try. Like a husband trying to say why he loves his wife. He tries, but he can never fully express why he loves his wife, right? The conceptual language is not capable of of encapsulating or capturing or projecting rather the language of being this by the way just as a side note is one of the reasons why um for those of you who are theological nerds and you've been into all these uh trinity debates is the trinity biblical is it not one of the things i find with the anti-trinitarian crowd is that they uh, miss the fact that you know they're, they're looking for these perfect um, foolproof explanations of God in Scripture. And if it's not there, then the Trinity is just not real. But honestly, what I see in this tension is inspired authors, yes, who are using a fallen human language with all of its conceptual limitations, and they're attempting to describe something which human language cannot adequately project. And that's if you want to exploit the weakness of human language to create these anti-Trinitarian notions, then you can. Sure, go for it. Um, but that's all it is. It's an exploitation of the weakness of human language that ignores how the biblical authors are desperately working to communicate this transcendent, transhuman theme using a language that is so limited, like human language. Anyways, that's, you know, that's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. Let's go back. Let's go back to our topic. Um, conceptual language, language of being. Conceptual language being the words that we use, language of being being the emotive, profound, existential moods that exist within us that we attempt to communicate with conceptual language. And so for the mind of faith, when we talk about truth, for the mind of faith, we can talk about language in absolute terms, in factual terms, in self-evident terms. And at a very profound level, at the level of mood or being, um, for us, truth is freedom. 
And so that's why we love it, you know, because truth is freedom. The whole great controversy, right? What's the great controversy about? It's about lies about God's character. And so God, you know, reveals himself and the truth about God sets us free from the oppression of the lies of Satan and so on and so forth. The, the, the language of being of the Seventh-day Adventist when it comes to truth is that truth is a treasure worth pursuing, right? But when we switch over to the current cultural milieu with the secular world, what we find is that at a conceptual level, they describe truth differently. For them, truth is described as relative. There is a distinction between what we'd normally called facts, which we can affirm as a shared perspective, and truth, which uh, is, doesn't exist. Um, and it's not self-evident, right? Truth is not, even if there is such a thing as truth, is far from self-evident. But at the language of being, truth in the secular milieu is oppression, right? Truth is oppression. And you think back through all the different oppressive regimes or social conventions and structures that have ever existed, and they all rest on some claim toward absolute truth. So here are some examples. You don't have to agree with the examples, all right? Don't miss the forest for the, for the trees. Uh, just understand this is how a lot of people feel about it. So the patriarchy, which has oppressed women and denied women the capacity to advance in the world, and that has placed women within very stringent strictures that basically coercively determine what your life is going to look like with no say of your own. Um, these narratives or these social conventions are built on a claim of absolute truth. The, the, and, and the absolute truth is the patriarchy and all the little bits and pieces that that entails, right? Uh, slavery. And if you go back through the history of slavery, I'm thinking particularly of the transatlantic slave trade and um, which, uh, you know, in, in the Americas and the African slave trade, uh, you know, what were people using to justify this? They were, they were making absolute truth claims. So eugenics was one of them, you know, which was essentially a science that supposedly proved that the white man was more evolved than the, the black man and that this in turn justified the mistreatment of the black. Um, and then people would use religious ideas as well, like the idea of election and that there was people who had been elected to be rulers and people who had been elected to be slaves and that denying slavery or erasing slavery was uh, an affront to God. And so even during the, the time of the abolitionist movement, Many Christians believed that the abolitionist movement was demonic, uh, and and so on and so forth. Right? You think of um, scenarios like the Dark Ages, and all of the injustice and oppression that took place during the Dark Ages. It was always built on some propositional idea that was purported to be an absolute truth. And so, when you have absolute truth it always leads to tyranny, right? And so in the cultural consciousness today, truth or a claim of absolute truth is actually an excuse for oppression. Freedom is then found not in truth, but in no truth. This is where freedom is found. And you gotta appreciate that, right? You gotta appreciate, you gotta sit down with people and be like, you know what? I, 
you know, there's a really good case to be made for what you're saying, even though I don't agree with it, because I think that there's a perspective that's missing here. There's a really good case to be made for this, you know? Um, and some of you who've been raised in extremely controlling fundamentalist religious circles, you know that truth is something that can be exploited. The claim of absolute truth is something that can be used to exploit, control, manipulate, um, and, and, and coerce you into living and making decisions and doing things that don't sit well with you, but it's sort of like you're in a straitjacket. And the straitjacket is this absolute truth claim, right? So this is how the culture interacts with truth claims now that, and, and it's not just religious truth claims, it's even scientific truth claims. And you can see this in, in the debates over trans, uh, trans rights, right? Like where there's people who say, well, the science says this. And then there's other people who say, well, it doesn't matter, you know, because there's a whole distrust really, and not in, in every case, but there is a strong distrust within postmodernist circles of science because science yeah science is empirical but who controls the process and what agenda you know just like eugenics right like what agenda are they trying to push so you can't put all your trust in science to give you some sort of absolute um foundation for truth there isn't any and so on and so forth so with this divergence and understanding of what constitutes truth where for us truth is freedom and for the culture truth is oppression then it's clear that we're we have to reframe the way we approach the spiritual conversation and the claims of jesus and the and the message of scripture in a way that doesn't automatically awaken the culture's defenses and this is what we're not doing. And we'll talk about that more next week when we look at how we advertise our evangelism and the topics that we cover and the branding that we use and the copywriting that we employ. Um, we're not doing that, right? So what I want to do today is I want to focus more on the personal. So we'll get into the more collective stuff next week. But the personal, how can you reframe, stay within scripture, but we reframe your approach so that you are interacting meaningfully with secular people. And I think the easiest way to explore this is to look at an illustration. And I call the illustration truth as stagnant versus truth as flow. So let's start with truth as stagnant. We've all seen a stagnant body of water, all right? It's a breeding ground for bacteria. And, um, you know, you even hear those horror stories of someone who went swimming in some like stagnant body of water and they got like a brain eating virus or, or bacteria or something. Um, and then next thing you know, like they've, they've had their arms cut off. Like it's, it's really scary stuff. Um, it, it happens, right? Stagnant water is a breeding ground for bacteria, you know, mosquitoes and all kinds of nasty stuff. And so when you see stagnant water, it's something that you naturally stay away from. But in the same way that stagnant water repels us, stagnant truth repels the culture. And what I mean by stagnant truth is truth that doesn't move. It's set. It can't be questioned. It can't be deconstructed. It can't be modified. And what I've encountered from studying the Bible with a lot of secular people is that most of the time, they're not really interested in deconstructing your truth claims they just want to know that they have permission to ask all the questions and to poke at all the holes that they want to poke at. 
It's not necessarily that they're like, oh, so you believe in the, you know, the atonement. Well, let me deconstruct that and destroy it. No, no, no. But what they do want to do is they want the freedom to look at that and ask all the tough questions. And when as Christians, we deny them the freedom to ask those tough questions with platitudes about you just have to accept it by faith or, you know, um, you know, making them feel bad that they're asking certain questions. This happens a lot to young people growing up in church, right? They ask certain questions and they're, you know, it's like you're not allowed to ask those questions. When you deny someone that, you've essentially entered into truth as stagnant. You're portraying truth to them as a stagnant body of water. And that is repulsive to emerging generations and secular culture. So what this perspective of truth, right, this stagnant perspective of truth also tends to nurture is a culture of elitism, where it's like, because we know this, we're better than everyone else. And, and narcissism, where the believer sees himself and his or her faith community as exclusively righteous, right? Everybody else is evil, and like, we are the only ones who have the truth. And yeah, let's be honest here. Seventh-day Adventists tend to fall for this trap all the time. And I think it's partly because we have a high regard for the concept of truth, um, but also because we don't really understand truth in the biblical sense, even though we have all the basic raw materials to do that. And we're going to get to that in, in a second. But Essentially, the end result of this approach in most cases is that you have a culture of people who cannot engage meaningfully with anyone outside their own immediate community of faith, whose secular or non-Adventist friends rapidly dissipate, and who, in the words of Amos Oz, live life with an exclamation point. I should read you that whole statement by Amos Oz because I think it's really insightful to our conversation today. Amos Oz says this, Fundamentalists live life with an exclamation point. I prefer to live my life with a question mark. I think that really captures the difference between a lot of traditional Adventism and where the culture is today. So as Oz states, the secular mind prefers to engage reality with this question mark. And so even when such a person starts exploring God and faith, a, a person or a church who has a stagnant truth approach will speak a language that is way too intense, way too rigid, and way too arrogant. And I've heard this before. I've seen this before. I've seen people in church interacting with newcomers who are asking really hard questions and, and really wrestling with the concepts and, and, and not just being, you know, tail between their legs. I'll believe it because you said it, but they're asking the hard questions. And then the Adventists will come back. Hey, look, I've been in church a lot longer than you have. I've been reading my Bible for many, many years. I've been in this thing for a long time. I know what I'm talking about. Trust me. No, no, no. That is a surefire way of ticking them off. Don't do that, okay? <laughs> and, and this is because... In these scenarios, what the Adventist has done is they failed to capitalize on the secular mind's introspective season by instead scaring the seeker away with too black and white an approach to reality. And again, this is because the secular mind sees the absence of truth as freedom and the presence of absolute truth as oppressive. And so while open to faith, because maybe their mode of navigation has collapsed, none of them are ever open to oppression, okay? 
keep that like close to your heart. Just because a secular person is now open to faith exploration does not mean that they're open to oppression. And what is oppression in their language of being? Oppression is absolute truth. And so they would rather remain in the darkness and the absurdity than embrace these absolute totalitarian truth claims because at least the absurdity gives them autonomy, right? At least the absurdity allows them to construct their own meaning instead of having to submit to some guy in a black suit and tie who tells them how they have to live. So what is the alternative approach? And I want to close with this because we're getting close to closing time. The alternative approach is truth as flow. Truth as flow. Truth as stagnant has a number of problems with it, starting with the fact that, you know, it's not even biblical, okay? Um, truth in scripture is always presented as a progressive flow. It has a simple starting place. So I want you to imagine this, all right? Because we're going to make a mental picture of what this looks like. So truth has this simple starting place, uh, a spring of water, and then it travels down this mountain. And you can imagine the mountain being time, culture, seasons, and as it travels, it brings with it new revelations and insights. And like a normal body of water that starts in the mountain and flows into the ocean, truth flows the same way. So this perspective of truth, what it does is it views truth not as a stagnant body of water, but as a process flowing from a mountaintop down through time and into an infinite ocean of reality. And so then what this means is that the truth seeker, myself in this scenario, can be pictured as a man leaning over this current of water that's flowing from the mountaintop down into this infinite ocean of, of, of reality. And I, and, I, and I see this body of water and I walk up to this body of water and I scoop up a little bit in my hands because it's the only thing I can hold and I drink some. The water is truth in motion toward this infinite ocean of truth. But I, as a temporal being, can only ever consume small portions of it. So what is the practical outworking of this view? And by the way, let me make something really clear. Truth as flow is not the same as truth as fluid. All right, truth as fluid is a completely separate issue. And I'm not going to go into that because we're almost out of time. But basically, truth as fluid is pluralism. All right, and I don't support pluralism. It's the idea that all truths are equal and that you know there's there's no flow, everything's just sort of floating and you know fluid and yeah, so that's not what I'm talking about. But truth has flow. It has a starting place. So it's absolute. It has a current. So it's going somewhere and it flows into this infinite ocean of reality, right? God's reality, what he's made, what he's created, who he is. So it has a destination. There's absolute nature here. But it's not a stagnant body of water that I claim ownership over. It is a raging river. And I, I lean over and I scoop up and I consume the portions of it that I'm capable of consuming at that stage in my life. So what is the practical outworking of this view? First, its proponent, let's say myself again, for example, understands that I don't know all truth. It's too much. It's too big. It's too powerful. I don't know all of it. All I know is the little bit that I have scooped from the river. And I expect to learn more as time and seasons come and go because the water keeps flowing. Second, 
Its proponent accepts that he is not infallible. For me, truth is absolute in the sense that it has a reliable ontological source. It's objectively absolute, right? The top of the mountain. Um, and it has a flow, a direction, and it has a destination. But my personal understanding of that truth is constantly evolving because while truth is infallible, I am not. Because at any given time, all I'm doing is consuming a mere handful that I'm scooping out of the river and, and slurping on. So this keeps me humble. And third, not only does its proponent expect to learn more truth as time advances, but they also expect to relearn the little bit of truth they already possess. In other words, as God reveals more truth, they expect that new revelations will not simply agree with old ones, but that they will expand, enhance, and clarify the truth they already possess. Now, Ellen White captured this view of truth really, really well in, uh, in Signs of the Times, and there's quite a few places where, where she talks about this vision of truth. Um, here's, here's one quote. She says this, Signs of the Times, May 26, 1890. Ellen White speaking. The truth of God is progressive. It is always onward, going from strength to a greater strength, from light to a greater light. We have every reason to believe that the Lord will send us increased truth, for a great work is yet to be done. In our knowledge of truth, there is first a beginning in our understanding of it, then a progression, then a completion, first a blade, then the ear, and after that the full corn in the ear. Much has been lost. Because our ministers and people have concluded that we have had all the truth essential for us as a people. But such a conclusion is erroneous and in harmony with the deceptions of Satan. For truth will be constantly unfolding. Isn't that awesome? Like, I'm telling you, Adventism, if you look at the raw materials that constitute Adventist thought, we have absolutely everything necessary for constructing a worldview and missiological evangelistic approach that has meaning to the secular age. We do. We totally, totally do. But that's a separate conversation for a separate time. Here's what I want to point out. That this approach to truth, right? Truth is flow. When embraced at the visceral level, it, gener it generates an approach that is capable of journeying with people meaningfully. Because we approach the seeker as a fellow seeker, not as a guru. Like, I'm not coming to you because I got this stagnant body of water that I possess. No, like, I see the river too. And I'm, I'm scooping it up and I'm drinking. You want to scoop some? Come over here. We can scoop together, right? We, we are fellow seekers. I am not a guru. We admit our limitations, our fallibility, and the fact that even what we do know is but a tiny flow into this infinite ocean of knowledge that we haven't even begun to scratch. In fact, Ellen White tells us that in eternity, we will spend eternity studying the love of God, right? We will spend eternity exploring the mysteries of God. So just because I have 28 fundamental beliefs that suddenly means that I know everything? Oh, of course not. Like, not even a little bit, all right? And so what happens is when you approach the secular mind with this approach, with this perspective, the threat of an absolute truth with its totalistic claims and oppression is calmed. The secular man knows that to pursue truth with someone like this means that wherever he goes, there's going to be no compulsion, no coercion, and no provocation. His conscience will retain its autonomy, and that's key. That's such a big value structure for secular culture today is autonomy, right? His conscience will retain his autonomy, even if he's being challenged by these meta-truths. 
His conscience will retain its autonomy. He doesn't have to fight with you. He doesn't have to argue with you. He doesn't have to feel pressured like, like a car salesman trying to sell him his faith concepts. So even if there is an absolute truth, it's not oppressive. And it does not stake a claim over individual conscience. This is also one of the basic raw materials of Adventist thought. That you can never go against conscience. That you can never coerce or oppress conscience. No matter how right you are. Truth spoken the wrong way is not truth. So, this is a truth then or a truth perspective, which the secular mind is more likely to engage with because it interacts meaningfully with the language of his being. It recognizes his or her disgust of tyrannical and coercive approaches to truth. It recognizes that, and it interacts meaningfully with that by saying, look, I don't have all the answers either. I'm a fellow seeker. Let's, let's explore this together. Let's do this together. I'll share with you what I know. You tell me what you know, and we'll go on this journey. We'll see what Jesus has to say. We'll see where he leads us. And you don't have to be apologetic about, look, I believe in the Sabbath, and I believe in the state of the dead. But instead of saying, this is the truth, and you must believe it, what you're saying is, here is the story that's been really meaningful for me. Here's the little bit that I understand. What do you think about it? Is there meaning and value in this for you? Tell me your story. Tell me your thoughts. It's a back and forth conversation. It's not a teacher and a student. It's both of us together exploring, journeying, learning. And over the years, I've learned so much studying the Bible with people who've never read a Bible. Wow, the amazing things I've learned by simply saying, hey, what? Tell me your story. And I'll share a little bit of mine. And we go step by step. It's awesome, guys. It's so awesome. I need to conclude, but I want to look at some statistics real quick. Because these scenarios that I'm talking about, they're, they're more than just, you know, hey, Mark has codified his observations of, you know, interacting with secular people. Um, it's, it's much more than that. Because again, if we were to look at this as a perspective summary, then truth as stagnant to the secular mind is truth is oppressive meets Truth is absolute. I know it all. And the result of that for a secular mind is that you are then interpreted as a threat. There is a collision and there is reluctance. But when you approach the secular mind with truth as flow, this means that truth is, oppress, uh, truth is oppressive in the secular context. Truth is oppressive meets truth is progressive. Right? So let me explain that again, just because I really want to make sure you get it. Truth is stagnant when it interacts with the secular mind because the secular mind already believes that truth is oppressive. Truth is stagnant means that you're interacting with a person who believes that truth is oppressive and you're coming at them with truth is absolute. I know it all. And it's just a big clash. But truth as flow is you're approaching a person who already believes that truth is oppressive, but you're approaching them with the perspective that truth is progressive and what this means on a practical level is the way you approach them is, hey, I'm seeking too. And now this is interpreted as safe. It's in, it awakens curiosity. There's a willingness to explore because the person says, okay, so you, I, I, I like you. Like, 
you you're 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 down to earth you're 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 you know you're a normal person you're not trying to shove stuff down my throat like okay we we can have these conversations we can explore this together and so these flow though again it's not just my basic you know like oh mark has codified this stuff it's this actually comes from the very real experience of modern day people who interact with our evangelistic approach so for example in 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 their millennial per- perceptions of adventist public evangelism research project Dr. Alan Parker and Emily Sharvet found that despite a relatively positive experience and appreciation for Adventist evangelism, millennials noted that, and I'm quoting here, 74% of the people who are attracted to our evangelistic seminars are already Adventists, 57% are conspiracy theorists, 47% are Christians of other faiths, and this is based on the people who are most likely to be attracted by our evangelistic meetings based on the advertising. In other words, when we advertise our evangelistic meetings, we are speaking the language of one group of people, people who are already Adventist, people who are already Christian, people who are into conspiracy theories. But we are not speaking the language of a secular world. So with regards to attracting non-Christians, only 20% of those who did the survey believe that our approach is effective with that number dropping to 6% for millennials. Now, the research also found that most millennials have a poor impression of how these series are advertised and that they are not very likely to invite a friend. Most of them actually consider the approach to be altogether outdated and irrelevant to a younger audience. And why? It's not simply because the conceptual frameworks that are used in the advertising and the language that is used in the sermons. It's because everything from the art to the copywriting, to the proclamation, is steeped in language that fails to interact with the language of being. For the millennial Z emerging secular generations. So in other words, most of our evangelistic series, and we're going to dig into this more next episode, they're designed to speak to a culture and a generation that don't really exist anymore. They make assumptions about their listeners that end up attracting everyone but the secular culture that surrounds us. And it's not, again, simply the clash in conceptual language that appears to drive these conclusions, but the clash in language of being. Our approach is literally using a different language, both at the level of concept and at the level of being. And as a result, it's interpreted as a threat even by those who are open to exploring God. I like how Dr. Jesse Wilson put it in one of his articles. What's the name of this article? I believe the article is titled How Adventist Evangelism Hurts Adventist Evangelism on Dr. Jesse Wilson's website. He says this, It's obvious why some evangelistic ideas and efforts are unfruitful. The calendar has changed, but the methods are the same. Going to the evangelistic campaign is like taking a nice stroll down memory lane. Yikes, I couldn't agree more, man. I think it's time that we as Adventists developed an approach to evangelism. And let's go back to the personal because, you know, we, we do personal evangelism too. But an approach to reaching out and connecting with the world around us that speaks to the soul of the culture, that finds beauty in the absurdity of life. And it begins with adopting a perspective of truth as flow, capable of interacting meaningfully with the secular mind. From that starting place, we can now begin to explore how our doctrines um, connect and how we can reimagine them as revelations that offer something of meaning to the culture, especially a culture drowning comfortably in absurdity. 
Now I want to bring this to a close, guys, because I've been going for a while. So I want to bring this to a close. It's been good. We've covered some uh, pretty heavy stuff. Pretty heavy stuff today. A lot of information here. Um, but I trust that you can always go back and read some more or listen. Listen once again. And if you want to get this in its text format, uh, just go to the um, storychurchproject.com. Look at the latest blog. Go to the blog link where this podcast is advertised. And in that blog link, you will be able to see a link to the original article that this episode is based on, which is on the Compass magazine, Truth and Absurdity. Reimagining Adventism, Truth and Absurdity. I wanted to close with this. Here's my closing thoughts. This is an email that I got from one of the listeners. And she shared a story about a, um, a friend of hers who came from a more postmodern background and how he came to know Jesus. This is what she said in her email. I asked her for permission to read this, so here we go. My friend was going to a university and met some Christians who were intent on converting him. After all, he's a really nice, personable guy. He attended the lectures with them and then regaled them with arguments opposing the content of the lecture. He subjected himself to Bible studies with them, but he had arguments against every proposition designed to move him. He read many books and argued with them in the margins. You could be excused for seeing him as hardened and unreachable, but things turned around for him at an evangelistic meeting. And you're probably thinking, whoa, who was it? Was it Sean Boonstra? You know, was it Doug Batchelor? Whose evangelistic meeting did he go to? It wasn't that kind of an evangelistic meeting. See, she says everything turned around for him at an evangelistic meeting. And then right next to it in the email, she writes in capital letters, not. <laughs> and then she goes on and says this, unless you call an ordinary Christmas party of college kids fun as an evangelistic meeting. He saw, as she said, or as he said, that, hey, these people can have fun without alcohols and drugs. Yes. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit had been working on his life. She goes on to say, yes, the Spirit had probably been working on him all the way along. Christians befriended him even as they argued with him. But it was at a Christmas party that his journey toward faith began. Isn't that crazy? It wasn't with all the argumentative Bible studies or lectures. It wasn't at some $50,000 evangelistic series with fancy banners and updated PowerPoint slides and an international speaker. It was at a college Christmas party with a bunch of Jesus followers that he was actually able to hang out with and see truth flowing in their life. Not stagnant, not repulsive, flowing because the ultimate thing that we can really come down on and agree on is what this friend of mine actually said just before she shared this story she said this i believe we need to adopt the model that truth is a person jesus said i am the truth what that means is that we first need to know jesus for ourselves on a daily intimate level and then we can go into the world to engage with the people we meet in their culture. I couldn't agree more. Truth is flown. Becomes even more real when we recognize that truth in scripture is not a propositional idea. Truth is a person. 
If truth is a propositional idea, then yeah, go shove it down everybody's throat. But if truth is a person, how do you get to know a person? You don't get to know a person the same way you get to know a propositional idea. You get to know a person in relationship. And relationships flow. Let's leave it there. I'll catch you guys next week. Take care and God bless. <laughs> <laughs>